Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's an interlol Arscast. Yeah, it is an interlol. It really does feel like one, doesn't it? It's been a boring, boring, boring week. If only there was something interesting in the world of, I don't know, politics or something to keep us entertained or interested or flabbergasted or shocked and appalled. If only... Sadly, that's not the case, so we're just going to have to get on with it as best we can, because we could have just not done a podcast today. That would have been okay. You know, there's no Arsenal until not next weekend, but Monday. So the interlull ends and everybody else gets to play next weekend. But no, we have to wait until Monday night at eight o'clock before we uh, before we get going again. That's uh, against Newcastle. So, you know, it would have been okay, I think, to say, hey, this week. This week, let's not do a podcast because there's so much nothing happening. However, such is our commitment to our fantastic, loyal listeners. That's you, by the way. Uh, and thank you very much, as always, for being here. We couldn't leave you with more nothing on a Friday when there's already so much nothing that everyone's going, I wish there was less nothing. So it's it's incumbent on us, I think, to provide you with something to listen to. We do that, and I'm going to be talking to the author of a very, very interesting book about the Premier League. Uh, I'll introduce him now in a couple of moments' time. And normally this would be the time where we do a little bit of a roundup of the week's news, but there's been so little going on that there there isn't. Let me just go back on the website onto Arsblog News here and see what are the big stories of the week. Dennis Suarez, is he even real? Unai Emery settles into life in England by buying bird's-eye potato waffles and cloud in shape of Herbert Chapman trolls Tottenham's new stadium. That's what kind of a week it's been, folks. It's been one of those weeks. The chaps that aren't away on international duty have gone to Dubai for some uh, warm weather training and uh, a bit of a friendly game next week as well to keep the old legs moving ahead of the... The game against Newcastle, of course, so some of the guys gone include Mesut Ozil, Lauren Koscielny, Alex Lacazette, Mustafi, Petr Cech, uh, and a load of young players have gone out too as well, so that'll be a nice experience for them. Also nice, they brought along Hector Bellerin, Rob Holding, and Danny Welbeck, three guys who who have or who will be spending quite a lot of time alone and away from the rest of their teammates as they recover and recuperate from injuries. Danny Welbeck, I guess, is the closest to a comeback, but whether we're going to see him again in an Arsenal shirt, I don't know. Rob Holding and Hector are out until until next season, of course, but they went along too, so that's nice. Get all the, the chaps together, and this thing is more about team building and team spirit and a bit of bonding than it is training you know they could just stay at london colony and do the training if that's what they wanted so it's about maybe getting everyone together and fostering a bit more of a team spirit and do all those fun things that you can do when you go to dubai like look at the tall building and um go shopping they've got lots of shopping there in dubai i was looking it up there's loads of places. There's the the Mall of the Emirates, the Dubai Mall. And if you do buy two, you get one free. When John Terry went in there, it was, of course, uh, another prick in the mall. There's the French District, the Gaul Mall. There's the shopping center, which has no products whatsoever. It's called Mall or Nothing. The Looney Tunes Shopping Center, that's mall, folks. And, of course, if you can't get out during the day because it's too hot, 
you can go to the Lionel Richie Emporium, which, of course, is open all night long. No, I am not sorry. I refuse to apologize. Absolutely not. I won't do it. I shan't do it. And I won't do it. Right. I will leave it there, though, I promise. (laughs) Enough is enough. Uh, My guest on the show this week is the co-author of a fantastic book called The Club, How the Premier League Became the Richest, Most Disruptive Business in Sport. He has co-authored it with Jonathan Clegg, and today I'm delighted to welcome to the show Josh Robinson. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. So I think most people will know or realize or have experienced the the change that happened in English football um, when the Premier League came into being. It was at a difficult time for English football because there was a lot of things going on, the Hillsborough disaster, facilities, and the way that the game was uh, marketed, if it was even marketed at all. What we could view as TV uh, watchers was very minimal. And the Premier League came along and and changed all that. And one of the key men um, who was involved in that was somebody who's well known to Arsenal fans, and that's, that's David Dean. Yes. Um, as you rightly say, English football in the late 80s was really at its lowest ebb. Um, the facilities were not fit for purpose. Uh, it was badly marketed and, and underrepresented on television. I mean, the beginning of the 1985-86 season, there was actually no football on English television because of a dispute between uh, the broadcasters and the, and the clubs. Um, and David Dean was one of the people who realized that this was an absolutely crazy state of affairs. And uh, as you may know, Mrs. Dean is American. So David was spending a lot of time in the U.S. in those days. And that's where really he got the inspiration to think uh, and, and began to realize, hang on a second, this is what professional sports can look like. He was watching the NFL and thought, it's this big entertainment uh, business that, that we could replicate and also make money at. Um, so mm. – and. and you know, we take that for granted now, but that was really a novel concept in English football at the time. Yeah, I mean, when you look back to some of the figures that were doing the rounds in terms of what clubs were making from mm. television and what have you, they're absolutely minuscule uh, compared to what they were now. And I think you make the point in the book that football clubs weren't viewed or it was a new thing for football clubs to be viewed as businesses. They weren't run as businesses. They were run as institutions, and the people that that, that were in charge of these clubs were often seen as custodians rather than people who uh, were interested in making money. I mean, it, it just simply didn't really occur to people that football could be the kind of goldmine that it has become. No, exactly. It was you became a custodian of this institution, and your job as as owner was really just to look after it for a long time. But just looking after something doesn't necessarily create the kind of incentives that turning mm. profit does. Mm. So, um, you know, when you're talking about actually giving the fans something back for what they're paying for, um, you know, it meant an increase in ticket prices for sure. But it also meant that. Hang on, we're we're going to create a, a match day experience. We the fans don't owe us their support either. You know, we have to make it an enjoyable experience for them to come out here. The quote from David Fryer or Ken Fryer rather is, you know, if you um, treat people like animals, they'll behave like animals. And facilities were a big thing for for David Dean and anyone who experienced football in the eighties um, will be well aware that that facilities were rudimentary to say the least particularly uh, during the 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 years when terraces were uh, how people watch football dean was um if not obsessed he was certainly (laughs) (laughs) he was certainly wedded to the idea that people should have good toilets well the the toilets became kind of the symbol for everything else um and If you remember in those days what the toilets were, um, you might still be having nightmares about them because they they were not set up to, one, for hygiene, certainly not, or two, to move people through quickly um, and give them enough time to both use the toilet and then go get a a cup of tea at halftime. David Dean became fixated on this and thought – if we can just create a more pleasant experience all around, we'll actually improve the behavior of fans at games as well. And this was something that was uh, right at the front of everyone's mind in the eighties because of because of you know a decade of, of hooliganism problems. Um, figuring out ways to improve behavior at games 
was something that was something that like the, you know the government was trying in very ham-fisted ways to control um but david dean had this other solution and, and the other directors at arsenal which involved sort of just making the experience better and and more civil um and from there if you know if you're in a nicer more you know upgraded environment you're less likely to tear out the seats mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. Uh, and I think that's borne out to be true. I mean, I think there are other reasons for for things uh, becoming a bit more friendly and family friendly and the hooliganism dying off. But when it came to creating the Premier League itself, there were um, rival parties. Everybody associates the Premier League with Sky and Sky Television and and the advent of this kind of saturation broadcast that wasn't something we had experienced before, certainly this side of the Atlantic, where it wasn't just a game. There was a lot going on before the game. There was a lot going on after the game. Some of that was, you know, nonsense. Um, uh, Over the years, that's been sort of uh, weeded out. But, you know, ideas like cheerleaders and uh, halftime entertainment and and all this kind of stuff were new, new things but it was very close to not being on sky at all and what that might have meant for rupert murdoch's empire we can only speculate but you know it was itv and sky who were broadcasting uh, or bidding for the the broadcasting rights sky came in right at the very end but it also came after um the people who were tasked with creating the premier league found a loophole which allowed them to to make it happen Exactly. This was a this was a group of uh, young bucks, the uh, younger, you know, in in quotes, because they were in their forties, as opposed to sort of the old men who ran football clubs in those days, mm. um, who who saw the opportunity. And one of them was uh, David Dean, obviously. The other was Martin Edwards at Man United, and uh, the third was Irving Scholar from uh, that other team from across North London, and <laughs> the. Um, and, and working with Rick Parry, who, who was the first chief executive of the Premier League and later went on to, to work at Liverpool, um, the four of them formed a, a quite close friendship and a, and a really effective working partnership whereby they were trying to figure out how they could, at this point, pull out from the, the traditional football league structure, which was which was the, the core problem. You know, the way – because the football league negotiated – collectively um the teams at the very top of the pyramid got paid exactly the same amount as the teams you know 94 places below in the in the in the various uh, league tables when it came to tv rights and and this was a situation that no one else thought was completely crazy except for this small group of entrepreneurial owners um and so as they're as they're casting around through legal documents and trying to figure out a way to do it they um they also profited from a moment when the football league was quite um at odds with the FA for a variety of reasons and so very quickly when they found this loophole to break away from the football league managed to get the FA on side and a big part of it was just adding the words uh, you know adding the letters FA Premier League um, and you know that was a big part that satisfied the Premier League and and thought, hang on, we're going to improve the England team through this mechanism as well. You know, it may or may not have panned out, um, mm. but they jumped on board very quickly, and that was the rubber stamp they needed. From there, it became an issue of then uh, putting it on television, finding the right broadcast partner, and the the big five as they were then, which was uh, Arsenal, United, Spurs, Liverpool, and Everton, uh, driving the breakaway had um, all preferred ITV because they had a relationship with Greg Dyke, um, who you may remember from later on at the BBC and the FA. And what happened there was uh, Sky came in at the last minute, driven by, in part by Alan Sugar, who (laughs) opposed the ITV ITV deal because he had taken over from Scholar at Spurs and was actually selling the satellite dishes to Sky in those days, um, <laughs> which is uh, they, you know David Dean talks at length about trying to get Sugar barred from the vote, mm. and that went on and on. Um, but ultimately, Sugar gets to gets to vote, and Sky had realized also just how important this was going to be. Uh, Murdoch understood that to build the Sky Empire in Britain, which was losing about a million pounds a week at that stage. Um, he had to base it on two things, and it was going to be soap operas and football. 
And uh, he went very, very big on football. The morning of the vote, as they're taking the bids from ITV and Sky, uh, we have it in the book. He gets woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning in New York saying, we need another 30 million pounds on the table. And he puts it up. And, and, you know, that morning, the course of English football changed forever. Yeah, the ITV bid, which they were going to accept, was somewhere in the region of 260 million. And Sky came mm-hmm. in with, is it 300, 305 or something like that? Something similar. Yeah, there, thereabouts, depending on sort of where you started. Yeah. Um, so it, it sort of sparked a, a new era in English football, obviously, but an era of professionalism as well. And And one of the stories I think that... I found fascinating in the book was um, that of Manchester United and Martin Edwards. And at the time, people were always critical of United because they had so much money and they had merchandise here, there and everywhere. Uh, but they were basically the first club to realize the importance of, of those kind of revenue streams. And they left everybody behind. Now it seems so absolutely innocent, doesn't it, in comparison to where some of the money in the Premier League comes from? Basically, they created business based on the support and the brand and the following of Manchester United, they might have, you know, put Manchester United's logo on on every single thing they could put it on and sell it all around the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people found that distasteful at the time. It, it it just feels very innocent now. But, you know, this was a situation, this was a football club at that time that had given, was it Matt Busby and Matt Busby's family, a 25-year lease on the That's club right. shop and the merchandise. They had no merchandising deals. Anybody could use the uh, the the the, the logo or the crest and you could just and the you know kit deal was negotiated by the manager yeah it's you know it's absurd so they were the first really to realize that the revenue that you can generate from football isn't just going to come from what people pay uh over the turnstiles or via television income Absolutely. And, and Edwards understood that very early on. Um, and the example of, of Busby and the club shop is a good one because when he retired from the club, uh, this is how much they valued the merchandising rights. They gave him a parting gift, which was a 20-year lease on the, uh, on the club shop. And Edwards realized that this was such a mistake in the 80s as he's trying to build up the merchandising side of the club that two years before the lease expired, he said, no, we have to do this now and goes and buys back the lease from Busby. And ultimately, that's what became the, the megastore outside of Old Trafford. Mm. It's, you know, it, it's... Uh... It's amazing that it gave them such an advantage as well during the 90s in the Premier League where they had real financial firepower. Mm. But well, they, they figured out a virtuous circle very early yeah. on, which was not just the merchandising, but Edwards also realized that they had to invest in the stadium very quickly. So, I mean, he, he took on vast personal debt and, and the club took on a lot of debt as well in trying to build and modernize Old Trafford very quickly. First, the Stratford end, adding more hospitality, which was controversial because it took it did take seats away from season ticket holders, but it generated revenue um, that they were then able to spend on the playing squad. And because they had that first mover advantage, a lot of people took at least a decade to catch up. Yeah, Arsenal obviously went the stadium route as well, but much later. Mm-hmm. And I suppose what's a story that might interest people in the book as well is um, at the time when Arsenal were deciding, probably around the, the planning stages for uh, the Emirates Stadium, a man arrived in English football who would change everything in much the same way that Sky changed everything, and that's Roman Abramovich, and he brought Chelsea, uh, and he plowed all kinds of money into them and it was a new thing for English football I know we had the Jack Walker at at Blackburn um, example where a a man came in and spent big money on on a team but this is small fry and also the difference is of course was that um, Jack Walker was a Blackburn fan and he Mm -hmm. wanted his team to win Abramovich um, whatever whatever uh, reasons you want to give for his uh, involvement in Chelsea, and I'm not sure I want to go particularly down that road uh, in this interview. But you know, he wasn't a Chelsea fan. Uh, this was an investment that he was making for his own reasons. But it could have been very different. Absolutely, in you know, in looking to place some money abroad, he uh, and get, picking up a big visible asset in Britain, he uh, he'd been advised by uh, his bankers that. Well, one club you can't touch is Arsenal because it's not for sale. 
which uh, in one story we have in the book drove David Dean absolutely nuts because uh, he seemed to believe that he could have gotten everyone on board to sell. And, you know, who knows how different Arsenal's history would have been uh, had Abramovich bought it. Um, but the other club he looked at and even went to meet with uh, was Spurs. And we tell the story in the book of Roman Abramovich being in the Mercedes going up the Tottenham High Road and looking around and saying to the guy in the car with him, you know, this is worse than Omsk, which was this uh, grim outpost in uh, in Russia where they had a, where Sibneft had a refinery. Um, so he didn't end up buying Spurs either, and lands at Chelsea, where you know Chelsea was in dire financial straits in those days. Uh, they weren't quite at a point where they were going to turn off the lights, but almost. Um, so he comes in. They Google him, find the Forbes listing for him, and basically, you know, do. You know the the diligence that Chelsea did on Abramovich basically amounted to that, um, and then they signed a deal in under an hour. Mm. It'd be very interesting, wouldn't it, to think what would have happened if Roman Abramovich had bought Arsenal? Because again, much like in the way that Manchester United were derided for being this money bags club, there was great opposition from fans at the idea of a billionaire coming in and just plowing lots of money into mm. into a football club you know you've bought your success you've you've got no history all those things are obviously very applicable to chelsea uh, but you know there's a sort of cognitive dissonance required isn't there when it comes to um people who own football clubs these days and during the years when arsenal weren't successful and weren't winning titles and the ownership structure had started to change. The opposition to a character like Abramovich, to an oligarch, where his money came from became less and less important to people. And the desire to see your club win the Premier League or be competitive in the Champions League was the overriding factor for people. And we had that, you know, with with Kroenke and with Usmanov, where initially the idea of an Usmanov character was anathema to many people. It became less and less so during the barren years when trophies weren't being won. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point, Andrew. And what I was going to say is that, you know, the years around the construction of Emirates are really fascinating to me because as, you know, when they start building Emirates, um, it's very much in that kind of, build for the future model that United had, had kind of ever shown everyone the way on. Um, and thinking that, you know, match day revenue is still going to be a huge part of how we're able to reinvest in the playing squad. And, you know, this is, this is what has to happen. But by the time Emirates opens, um, that idea of, well, maybe an oligarch will just come in and buy us as well, had, had gained kind of validity in, in the mm. minds of a lot of uh, Premier League fans. Um, and the, the football world had kind of spun around again. And it, was, uh, it was a very strange kind of realization as Emirates opens that, that you know, the universe that it was conceived in no longer existed. It, it was very different because what had happened was other people had come along to see that, okay, Premier League clubs are, are there for the taking mm -hmm. if we want them. I mean, I suppose what's a curious thing about all this is the fact that David Dean is the guy who brought Stan Kroenke to Arsenal. The way that he brought Stan Kroenke to Arsenal was probably not the most advisable in that it got him turfed out of the club. Um, and Kroenke was initially viewed as a hostile investor. From what I understand, that was not Kroenke's belief at the time. He thought that he was going to be, you know, introduced to the Arsenal board and then all of a sudden the shit hit the fan and Dean is gone. Dean crops up again then with Ali Sharuzmanov, a rival consortium or what have you, or whatever you want to call it, to uh, not just Kroenke, but to the other shareholders at the time and, and sort of created in his, I suppose, desire to move Arsenal towards that kind of model of ownership, where I think there was probably a, a personal upside for David Dean, created a cold war, a boardroom cold war at Arsenal that went on until last year when, when Usmanov sold to Kroenke. Yeah, yeah. And then it was, it, it all made for a very strange decade at Arsenal um, between the, the austerity following the, the opening stadium and that kind of boardroom tension. Um, it It sort of, 
meant that while other clubs like you know like Chelsea were just continuing to plow ahead <laughs> with uh, with plans to spend fortunes, and you know City City arrived on the scene during that period as well, um, following the Abu Dhabi takeover and United under the Glazers, which weirdly turned out to be one of the more stable relationships in the Premier League. Um, it means that all that continued to advance while Arsenal was still trying to figure itself out. So, look, as the Premier League has continued on its financially upward trajectory, you know, every time there's a, a TV rights deal, the money gets bigger and bigger and the foreign rights get bigger and bigger. Uh, we kind of ask ourselves, is this something that can continue? You know, how long can it go on for? Is this an inflation, an inflationary bubble, you know, and will the bubble burst at some point? And there's this, there's sort of a sense that, look, they've created the beast and now they have to keep feeding the beast. How much can they continue to, to shovel into the stomach of this entity before it has a, a negative impact or before the negative impact of that is reflected in fans. And I've got a follow-up question that I'll ask you in a minute about how how football is being consumed these days. But it, it does feel like there's only so far it can go in its current guise. Right, exactly. And we're at an interesting point now where we're seeing the the fundamental driver of the the first quarter century of the Premier League was UK TV rights. Um, and we're at a point now where those seem to have leveled off a bit. And we're, we're seeing as well, you know, the, the clubs understand that the big growth opportunities are abroad in places like the Far East and places like, you know, the, the United States where uh, the NBC deal is basically one of the Premier League's favorites. Um, they signed for six years for a billion dollars. Um, you know, so there's a there's a very clear intention to service those markets as well, and that understanding that that's where the next potential money spike is going to come from, because it's not going to come from from the UK. Um, so there's that, but there's also this growing tension between, as we know, the the big six in the Premier League and the rest of the league, as the big six starts to feel that, like in 1992, maybe they're not getting their due. Um, it's the whole discussion around the foreign rights and how those are redistributed. They used to be redistributed evenly between the 20 Premier League clubs. Um, they tweaked the formula somewhat, but it was really significant when they did that in, in 2017 because that was the first time in the history of the Premier League that they actually went back and tweaked what was called the Founder Members Agreement, um, which was the founding document in 1992. And that's what set out how all the revenue was distributed in the Premier League. Tweaking that meant that, well, it's not sacred anymore. We can change it again for a few years down the road. And there's no doubt in my mind that the big six will come back, um, having sort of agreed to a fragile piece uh, 18 months ago. There's no doubt in my mind that they'll come back and say, we want to change it again. We need an even bigger share of this pie. And they have this weapon uh, that they're not afraid to use or this threat they're not afraid to use, which is always, well, we're going to break away. We're going to go join a Super League. Um, and the threat is extremely valuable to them. Yes, of course. Uh, and there was, uh, you report in the book about a meeting in New York. I think uh, the, the Glazers were there. Ivan Gazidis mm -hmm. was there uh, representing Arsenal and representing ultimately KSE, who were the majority shareholders at the time. You know, the, the idea that the Big Six should get paid more than everybody else was shot down because it has to get the agreement, of, I think, of 14 clubs. Yeah. Um, it didn't get that. Uh, you know, I, and you can understand why. It's It's sort of like... Turkey's voting for Christmas if you're going to, you know, if you're a Bournemouth or, or somebody, why would you vote for something like that? It's, it's absolutely crazy. But, you know, what it has appeared to do, Josh, is, is create an environment in which the good of the game or the good of football itself or the fans is an absolute irrelevance. And I was very struck very early on in the book by a quote from Graham Taylor, and, you know, one of the one of the things that they talked about at the start when they were going to create the Premier League is this will be good for for England, for the mm -hmm. English football team, etc., etc. And Taylor said, people think there must be a lot of thinking in this Premier League. There is none. And I'm not totally convinced this is for the betterment of the England team. I think a lot of this 
is based on greed. And that's a <laughs> that's a very <laughs> canny quote uh, from Graham Taylor there, because I think that's absolutely the case. And we are now in a situation where it's not football that's the driver. It's money that's the driver. Money kind of creates this greedy, avaricious way of doing business that will ultimately only benefit a few. Well, you know, it's this is one thing that struck me in, in researching the book and speaking to the, the dozens of people that we spoke to is in, in building this empire, in building this, this monster, um, which works in a very smooth way and is a very slick product, um, it's important to remember that this was not uh, always a, a coordinated effort by a bunch of like, you know, Steve Jobs of the football world. This was they, they were not necessarily visionaries uh, in in the in that Steve Jobs kind of sense. Mm. It was really they were looking out for their own self interest, and everybody at every turn is looking out for their self interest. Um, and because of that, the, the stars aligned in such a way that it became this hugely successful thing. But it was not. What they it was not always the plan. This was not what they pictured, um, mm. mainly because they couldn't picture it. They, they never thought that this kind of money would come would come their way. Um, it, it's really incredible how the the circumstances that that created the modern Premier League um, kind of enriched everyone in in that way. You know, I don't think that David Dean and Scholar and Edwards in 1992 could have ever imagined. A Roman Abramovich, let alone a Sheikh Mansour, uh, yeah. coming into the Premier League and flooding it with the money they did, um, or that Sky would continue its its investment for over two decades the way it did, um, and so yeah, in in the end, they were rewarded for looking out for themselves, and so there was no reason not to continue doing it. Where where do you think it goes from here? Because you know the the growth of the Premier League globally, not just in England or in Europe, but globally, is very much tied to television. Mm -hmm. And we're now in an era where television, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's certainly less important. And more and more, it's not how everybody wants to watch football or experience football, because, you know, we all have... Uh, on our persons, probably, uh, you know, a device which we can stream football on. Not the best way to watch it, but we can do it that way if we want. Um, we People consume football differently as well. You know, for example, we have a live blog on our, our website, which was designed for people who couldn't watch a game. So you could follow some text commentary. But for every one person that follows it because they can't see the game, there's somebody else following it because they want to read what I'm writing while they're watching the game. And they want to chat to people as well. And and the idea that you have to sit down in a specific room in your house in front of the big screen and watch TV is becoming less and less uh, rigid, I think. Um, but we have an organization that is shackled to television right at this moment in time so how do you see that going you know they're putting people in jail for 17 years <laughs> this week yeah. for running streaming websites there are far worse crimes committed every day of the week and and far lesser sentences given out which perhaps speaks to the the the, the influence that the people with this kind of money have over the judicial system but that's a that's another argument but you know where is it going to go, and are they going to be um, adaptive to what people want, or are they going to keep making them do it the way they've always done it because those people can pay the most money? I mean, this is this is the million dollar question, or or you know maybe the billion or ten billion dollar question. Um, the you know we we forget that in 1992 the Premier League was actually by by siding with Sky was actually the technological forefront. They they bought into satellite TV very early. Um, but of course, that was the model you described, which is you go into a special room in your house and you sit there for two hours and consume whatever's being kind of projected at you. Um, now, figuring out what the, what the next step is and what the new consumption habits are going to be for a product that still requires you to sit there and watch for 90 minutes um, is very tricky. 
the, the Premier League is dabbling in um, in sort of OTT platforms and things like that. And we're seeing we saw the Amazon deal that comes into effect next year. We'll we'll see how that turns out. I mean, uh, in France, for instance, where the Premier League is entirely on a um, or the rights were bought by a totally digital platform, mm. um, you have you have the option of watching every game as you would in England, but on your phone, um, which I guess you can do in England as well. But that, that is the primary, uh, the primary focus. And then you cast it to your TV or whatever. But, you know, there are places that are experimenting with this and how that goes is, as you say, rightly really going to determine the, the value of Premier League TV rights going forward. But uh, it's, all that to say is I don't really know what the what the future holds in that respect. I mean, we see La Liga really experimenting with some new formats. I mean, they you know their rights in India, for instance, mean that the games are broadcast on Facebook. Um, is that something we could see in the Premier League uh, a cycle or two from now? I, I wouldn't rule anything out at this point um, because people like Facebook and Amazon and Google are the ones who ha- who can afford to pay what uh, what Premier League rights cost now. Yeah, and also have the platforms, you know, to distribute the content. And the reach. Yeah. yeah, of course, they have the reach. I mean, I suppose another thing that strikes me is that the success and the popularity of the Premier League, which I think has, you know, in some ways driven, not the interest in football, but sort of the the football experience in general because it's such a big league and it's so global you know the offshoot of that is that uh, sort of like a rising tide lifts all boats in a way um you know la liga the interest in la liga i think is quite interesting that you know when it went off sky um the amount of people watching la liga plummeted simply because you know the interest wasn't there but we do have a, a football world in which there's international tournaments. Um, they're being revamped. We're going to get a 48 club World Cup. Uh, you know, that's going to be played in the winter. Um, we've got things going on all summer. Preseason is no longer preseason. Preseason is now dressed up as this slightly competitive environment with the, the International Champions Cup and, and all those kind of things that the appetite for football seems as insatiable as ever for from the consumer point of view um yes although i i have to admit i mean occasionally i and maybe you feel this way too occasionally i do feel like there is too much football yes Um, uh, yeah i do and but the people who make money don't right i guess right and as someone who covers a professional i find it exhausting um but the it's it's the question now of figuring out you know at what point are we getting away from um, from kind of what makes it special and what makes it authentic? And you know, the global appeal of the Premier League is rooted in that, in, in that idea of the narrow streets leading up to the stadium and the songs. And and we see it with foreign fans who show up at Emirates uh, every weekend, and they're there to soak in that whole experience. Um, but we're the, from the club's perspective, you know that's great, and they they like those people. But what they what they also are caught in now is this question of who are we servicing? Is it the sixty thousand fans who come to Emirates every weekend, or is it the potential audience of billions watching around the world? Who are we there for? Um, and so that's that's left them in a, a tricky decision making spot where. Those are the two things pulling them in opposite directions every time they have to decide um, how are we going to broadcast this, how are what content are we putting out there, uh, who are our sponsors, all of those all of those things that factor into keeping the club running. Um, and then after that, you've also got the idea. I think as people who who are close to the Premier League and and who've spent a long time watching it, the idea of blowing up the format of the the club competitions seems anathema to everything we've, we've ever known. But I'm, I'm always shocked, and I know you want to come to this, about the when we talk about revamping the Champions League or the idea of a Super League, um, I'm always shocked at how many people around the world say, this would be great. People do. There are a lot of people out there who do want to see you know, Juve play Man City every week. Um, 
and who would tune in happily to just watch that. They don't necessarily need Arsenal Huddersfield. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about the, you know, the potential downsides of uh, a European Super League. And, you know, there, there are many, I think, um, the impact uh, on domestic leagues, first and foremost, and fans who who go to games um, right up there too. But it's been touted as a thing for such a long time. Um, you, you wrote a story this week in the Wall Street Journal about meetings between the top clubs in Europe and a revamp of the Champions League and potentially what it might mean uh, for those games, but also how it might move us closer to that idea of a European Super League. Right. And, you know, the the idea of a Super League scares uh, basically two stakeholders in football. One is the domestic leagues. So the Premier League, La Liga, you know, Javier Tebas at La Liga has been extremely vocal about calling any potential Super League or even revamp of the Champions League uh, a catastrophe waiting to happen. Um, But it also scares UEFA because UEFA – has only has those competitions um, as its lifeblood. So it doesn't want uh, another parallel organization. What it wants is to kind of harness whatever it is the clubs want and funnel it into its existing structures. Um, and so you've got UEFA, which met with the clubs, uh, the, the European Clubs Association on Tuesday, and this, this was what the story was about, which is um, finally they've decided all right, we're in agreement. The competitions stay the same till 2024. After that, all bets are off. Um, and if that means uh, radically changing the Champions League to suit what the clubs want more, then it seems that UEFA is prepared to meet them at least halfway. What, what, what kind do the of, clubs want? Yeah, sorry, um, I was going to ask. It's, they want guarantees. They don't want to go through... Uh, they don't want to have the possibility of having a down season and then missing out on Champions League income, and we've seen it with Arsenal. We've seen it with uh, we've seen it with Chelsea. We've seen it with Man United. Um, it does affect your bottom line if you if you're out of the Champions League for a season or two. So what they want is we want to uh, sort of stay in regardless of domestic performance, and if that means a possible say, you know, you take the top 32 teams in Europe and then you only relegate four of them or eight of them. Mm. at the end of every Champions League, then that would suit them just fine because it means that they could finish seventh at home but still be in the Champions League or whatever it may be called after 2024 um, and count on that income. What What is to stop, if anything, a modern David Dean, a modern Martin Edwards, a modern Irving Scholar coming together and putting together something new in the way that the Premier League was formed, but on a European level. I mean, now more than ever, there appears to be the money to make anything happen. And even if you're caught out using your money in the way you shouldn't be, the punishments are so minor and irrelevant, it's worth taking that risk. Uh, And then if you take those people out of the equation and you can just do what you want with your massive sums of money from the country or nation that owns your football club, um, it makes life an awful lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, let's let's give that potential investor a name. Agnelli, say. Um, at Juve, he's been extremely vocal about wanting to remake the Champions League for, for years now. Um, and, you know, he... In his heart of hearts, he doesn't even want to wait till 2024. He'd be pushing for 2021 if he could. Mm. Um, and I think what we're seeing from the likes of Agnelli and leaders of other major clubs in, in leagues that aren't the Premier League is a fear that they've kind of hit their caps at home, that there is no more money out, out there, um, or at least in, in the big rich markets to be spent on Serie A or on La Liga. So, and, you know, the Premier League draws so much oxygen that they can't keep up. So what do they have to do? They have to harness some of that excitement around the Premier League and bring it to them. Um, And if that means remaking a competition where they're just with each other all the time and not wasting their time as they see it with, you know, Udinese or, uh, you know, Villarreal, then... So be it. 
if they're just playing Premier League teams and each other every week, then that's what's going to make the most money for them, and that's what they want. Um, it, it really is a whole different mindset. Yeah, it sure is. And look, it's, it's fascinating and scary and weird and slightly discombobulating to think where football might be in five or, or ten years' time. You know, things that that I had never thought possible are happening you know the 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 qatar world cup for example having a world cup in the winter in the middle of the season just was absolutely unthinkable um you know having every club in the world in the fucking world cup is what seems to be going to happen next as well so it's it's happening and it seems to be happening faster and faster yeah and and even stuff like uh you know the game 39 that was proposed from the premier league point of view play a game a round of games abroad uh, La Liga, you know, I think I think it's fascinating yeah. to hear you say La Liga are absolutely opposed to the idea of a European Super League because they clearly want and need Barcelona and Real Madrid to be playing in La Liga, and yet they're trying to play games abroad. Of you know, and um, so it's sort of like uh, you know the 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 thirst for money is robbing people of common sense. Of course, and and for in La Liga's case, it's you know they're kind of. Um, they're kind of scrambled by looking at the Premier League and trying to figure out ways to catch up. Um, and so, you know, and the, the Game 39 thing, that idea is not dead. They no. kind of put it on the back burner for years, but Scudamore was still very much in favor of it when he left Premier League. And, um, you know, we, we spoke to a guy like Ferran, uh, we spoke to Ferran Soriano at Man City um, for the book. And he says openly, this is a great idea. He would do it if he could. Um, because they, the people running football clubs today genuinely don't see anything wrong with it. And it's what I said before about who are they servicing. Yeah, it might upset the season ticket holders at home, but there's an audience of potentially billions out there who would absolutely love the chance to go see City play Arsenal in L.A. in a game that mattered. Yeah, well, that's the thing, a game that, that mattered, and uh, not the, the International Champions Cup. Uh, right. Uh, Josh, it's a, a fascinating book. Um, you've co-authored it with uh, Jonathan Clegg. It's called The Club, How the Premier League Became the Richest, Most Disruptive Business in Sport. It really is well worth a read. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Andrew. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you very much indeed to Josh. You can follow Josh on Twitter if you like, at JoshRobinson23, at JoshRobinson23. And the book is a really great read. Lots of stuff you will know, but there's so many little stories and additional details and snippets of stuff. It makes for uh, for fascinating reading. You can find more details about the book, and you can order it online from theclubbook.com. That is theclubbook.com. Or you can get it from your local independent bookstore if they don't have it, I am sure if you ask the nice man or woman behind the counter, they will be delighted to order it in for you. We need bookstores. We need bookshops. I know it's really, really handy just to sort of click a few buttons and have it delivered in a day or two. But, you know, get some exercise, go to the bookshop, support a local business, and you get a fantastic book into the process. Right. I'm going to leave it there because there isn't an awful lot going on this weekend. No Arsenal anyway. 
James and I will be here on Monday. We will have an Arsecast Extra for you. If you feel like you'd like some more things to listen to and you're not already an Arsebug member on Patreon, sign up right now and you can listen to the first in a brand new series of podcasts called The Players. Myself, James, uh, Andrew Allen, Tim Stillman, we discuss the career, the Arsenal career and life of Dennis Bergkamp and there will be many more players to come. There's loads more podcasts in there, history podcasts, live streams, loads of stuff and articles. You also get a free copy of our our audio book together, The Story of Arsenal's Unbeaten Season. And all it costs you is a fiver a month, five euros a month. And if you're in the EU, you pay a bit of VAT. If you're not in the EU, you don't have to pay VAT. So if you're outside the EU, no VAT. It costs just a fiver a month and you get instant access to all of that content and everything else that we will be posting in the future. So do check that out. And of course, it does help support everything that we do here on the site, all the podcasts and articles and blog and news and and everything else. So if you fancy a bit of that, come on board. You can be an Arsebug member on Patreon right away. It's patreon.com forward slash Arsebug. Patreon.com forward slash Arsebug. Catch you on Monday for the Arsecast Extra. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, Sorry about this, folks, but we've been contacted by the advertising standards people who say that in order not to show preferential treatment to any particular shopping center in Dubai, we're going to have to mention every single one of them. So the one you go to when you're on your own, of course, is Mall by Myself. And when you're with your friends, it's Mall Together Now. If you're into the solo work of a female singer who was in an 80s synth duo, then you go to Mole Cried Out. They do have a fantastic selection of vinyl in there, uh, 12 inches, 10 inches, 7 inches, picture discs. They even have some stuff on mini disc as well. If you've just been broken up with, well, you're Mole out of love. And if your hands are cold, well, there's only one place to go, of course. Mole you need is gloves. You may now unsubscribe from this podcast without any guilt. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.